we have to realize that many folks have had several ideas on how to best measure the health and the effectiveness of a church. You know, some folks say that the more people that you cram into a space, the more effective and more healthy you are. And I guess they missed the ministry of Isaiah. You know, when God sent him out, he told him that nobody's going to believe your message. In fact, you know, we know that Isaiah was appointed by God and that he was a prophet of God. And and God had told him, hey, you're going to go and preach this message and who's going to believe it? Nobody. And so maybe they are confused even by, you know, the the Latter-day Saints or maybe even the Jehovah Witness movements that are growing at alarming rates. And so if they're going to give success and health measures to the size of your church attendance, I'd be kind of careful about that. And some folks say that the the more people who raise their hand at the end of a service and in order to be saved determines the health of a local church. Other folks believe that the more people who come to what the American church is called the altar now and who cry at the music, who have this emotional experience, determines the success rate of the church. But through reading 1 John... And through reading uh, both a book called The Gospel-Driven Church by Jared Wilson and, and what I think is actually a sermon by Jonathan Edwards called The Distinguishing Marks of, of a Work of the Spirit of God, I've come to find six measures of a healthy local church. And they're going to be here on the board, and you guys can write that down or, or snap a picture of it. But I've come to find six measures of a healthy local church, of, healthy, of a healthy Christian, of a genuine move of the Holy Spirit here in First John And in a church like ours, these six measures are incredibly important to talk about. Because, you know, for instance, here in a few weeks, there's going to be several of us that aren't going to be here for for Sunday service. And so that's like half of us are going to be gone. And so many of us, if we don't understand these six measures of what a healthy church looks like, we could walk in here and be very confused. You know, without understanding God's definition of a healthy and effective church, one might walk in here very discouraged. We might think that, man, our church is lacking something because we only have a handful of people. But if I remember right, the early church started with just a handful of people, right? The early church started with just a handful of people in an upper room. Jesus started with just 12, and one of them was a liar, But it started small. And as Jared Wilson writes, and I hope this is an encouragement to us, not everything that can be counted can be measured. Let me say that again. Not everything that can be counted can be measured. So what determines the health of a local church isn't always the number of people that are in the pews. What determines the health of a local church isn't always the size of the building or the great children's department that they have. What determines the, size, the health of a local church isn't always the uh, fantastic music program they have with every equipment uh, you know, that you can think of. It's not it at all. But before we jump to the text, I want to give us a, a list as, that are found here, and I'll read through them, the six measures found in 1 John. And this isn't an exhaustive list from the entire Bible, and it's not even an exhaustive list for the uh, book of 1 John, for that matter, but it's a list of measures that we should strongly consider and measure not only Imago Day but ourselves with. And so to, to, to spell them out, number one is to affirm and proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. The next measure is to understand the truth of sin and a rhythm of repentance. The third measure is living in obedience to God. The fourth measure is that we have an evident love for God and neighbors. The fifth measure is that we are devoted to the truth 
And the sixth measure is that we have a confidence in prayer. You know, and if I were to add more outside of the book of John, I would probably put things like, you know, expositional preaching or biblical leadership or, or um, the way that we can measure how we're fulfilling the great commandment or, I mean, the great commission. But this is a list of measures that I've listed found in First John that we should strongly consider and measure ourselves by. And so the first way that we can measure that we are a healthy local church is that we, number one, affirm and proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. So the beloved apostle here, and just to kind of give you guys a little bit of context, the beloved apostle John was concerned greatly with the heresy that was creeping into the early church. Remember the false doctrine that he was actually combating, going toe-to-toe with, uh, denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. These, these, this false doctrine was uh, what would be known as Gnosticism. And so uh, they denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. They, they did this because they believed that matter... In, or in other words, the flesh was evil and in an attempt to separate Jesus from evil, they denied his humanity. So they really kind of looked at Jesus as nothing more than kind of like a holographic figure that he had no flesh or matter. So they denied his humanity. And we see this today in religious movements such as Mormonisms or, or Mormonism or Jehovah Witness or Judaism or, 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 or Islam and, and other different movements. And these movements take Jesus and they make him less or they equate him to be equal even with Satan in some terms. And so to combat this false teaching, John gives a beautiful presentation of the true Jesus. And remember, I want you guys to know this, that John walked with Jesus, Right? He witnessed divine healings and miracles from Jesus. He leaned his head on the chest of Jesus. His feet were washed by Jesus. He witnessed Jesus being nailed to a cross. He saw his blood. He witnessed the sky turn black. He knew about the curtain in the holy place ripping in two. He witnessed the resurrection, the resurrected Jesus. And the list could go on and on and on. If anybody can testify to the true Jesus, it's John. So follow me as we read uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what have we looked at, or what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So the true Jesus, the Jesus that John illustrates here is is that Jesus is both God and that He is also man. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal, which means that he is without end, which means he is without beginning, which means that Jesus has always existed. And, what, and we see that truth come to life there in verses 1 and 2, as John refers to Jesus saying, what was from the beginning? So Jesus, who was from the beginning, and, and he also calls him the eternal life. And this language is super familiar because we see in the Gospel of John, the same writer, and and actually in verses 1 through 4, he says this very thing. That in the beginning was the Word, which we know to be Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, He was the Creator. He is the Creator. In Him was life, and life, and the life was the light of men. And so we see him use very similar language here. And when we put these two texts together, we get a great picture of the eternality, so the internal state of Jesus Christ. 
We come to understand that Jesus is indeed God and he has always existed, that he created and that he was with the Father from the beginning. As we continue in these first two verses, we're able to see that Jesus is not only divine, that he is not only God, but that he is also a tangible human. So in verses 1 and 2, we see that John states that he and others heard Jesus, they saw Jesus, and they felt Jesus. He says that the word of life, the one who was from the beginning, the one who created the world, the one who was with the Father, came into this world and was manifested to us. And we see in John chapter 1 and verse 14, he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he saw his glory, glory as of Oh, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Saying that the word, the one who was from the beginning, the one who is eternal, the one who was with God, who created the world, took on flesh and dwelt among us. We know that this happened through the virgin birth. You know, when Mary, who had never been with a man, conceived Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And John's purpose in writing these truths is not only to give uh, us great theological understanding. It's not only to establish this deep theology. No, it's to be true to his nickname, the evangelist. The evangelist John is seeking to proclaim this truth about Jesus. So the people who hear it may also believe and have fellowship with the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. Which we see there in verse 3 and in verse 4. See, Jesus is not only eternal in himself, but he also offers eternal life to all who believe in his name. And it is in John's heart to see his flock strengthened by the true knowledge of Jesus Christ, as well as to see many, as many as God will allow to come to saving faith and the true knowledge of Christ. And if we are to, sorry, if, if we are to be not only a healthy church, but Healthy Christians, this essential uh, test must be true of us. We must affirm and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. We must affirm and proclaim that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We must affirm and proclaim that He was in the beginning with God. We must affirm and proclaim that all things that came into being came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being. We must affirm and proclaim that in Him was life, And that life was the light of all men. We must affirm and proclaim that that he became flesh and dwelt among us. That he was witnessed tangibly by many folks, including the disciples. That he lived a life obedient to the Father for the purpose of bringing sinners into fellowship with the Father and himself. We must affirm and proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. That he is the perfect God-man who laid his life down in order to pay the price for our sins. That he resurrected in order to give us eternal life through faith in him. You see, we can truly affirm something only when we have experienced it firsthand or witnessed it firsthand. So much like John said there in verse 3, what we have seen, what we have heard, and we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So much like he says in verse 3, because we have seen in the Scriptures the blessed Savior... Because we have heard the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we have laid our lives down to follow Jesus. We then there proclaim this glorious message to all who hears and believes. Or we we proclaim this glorious message to all who would hear and believe so that they would come into fellowship with us and with the Father. 
and with the Son. And I want you guys to know something, and I'm not saying this to beat anybody down, but I I pray that it comes across as an encouragement or a, a challenge that I'm not the only one who proclaims this true Jesus. From this pulpit is not the only place that we proclaim Jesus Christ. It's done at our workplaces. It's done where we live. It's done in our homes. It's, it's not just exclusive for the pastor. It's not just exclusive for whoever's preaching. It's for all Christians to affirm and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. And you might say, who do I proclaim this truth to? And it'd be a better question if I asked you this, who do you not proclaim it to? We have, we have a, a, a mission to, to, to spread the gospel, to be farmers, to, to plant seeds and to water seeds. And God gives the increase. We're not responsible for who comes to faith and who doesn't come to faith, who receives the message and who doesn't receive the message. We just have a job, and that's to share the gospel, to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ, the true Jesus, the one who was and is and always was, and the one who... Who, who, who came and, and took on flesh and, and died at the hands of sinners and took on the, the, the full wrath of God so that we could be saved, who rose again from the grave after three days, the one who is coming back. That's the true Jesus that we proclaim. And to affirm this truth about Jesus is not just enough. As I said, we, a mark of a genuine move of the Holy Spirit, a measure of, of, of the health of a local church, is that we not only affirm, but that we also proclaim this truth of Jesus. And so the second way that we can measure the health uh, of us as a local church is that we have an understanding of the truth of sin and a rhythm of repentance. John's opponents that we have uh, been discussing believe two false assumptions about sin. The first assumption that they believed was that some uh, believed that sin had zero effect on your spiritual condition and that it was okay to sin as much as you want. Uh, that there would be no consequences, that some would even go as far as denying the existence of sin. And for those um, who, who might uh, know a little bit more about theology, that's called antinomianism. And the second assumption for, that, that they believed, that the other opponents believed, was the opposite of that. They, they believed that sin needed to be dealt with radically because they thought that matter was evil, so therefore they would treat their bodies harshly. And so much that they abstained from particular foods, indulgences, pleasures, sometimes even subjecting their bodies to harsh torment, they had the wrong idea, the wrong understanding of sin. Sin is an archery term. It means to, it means to miss the mark. So I like to bow hunt. So if I go out there with my bow and I aim at a deer or if I aim at a target and I draw my bow back and I shoot and I come short of the target... I'm missing the mark. And I draw it back and I shoot again and I miss the mark. And I draw it back and I shoot again. I miss the mark. And that's the problem that we all have as humans is that we all miss the mark. We all sin. It's a problem that we all have. In Romans 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all all men because all have sinned. You see, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the garden, sin and death came into the world. As God cursed the ground and everything in it, our sin nature spread from Adam and Eve and throughout the lineages of the centuries. Which is why we don't have to teach children to lie or teach them to steal. They already know how to be bad. It's, it's natural to them. It's in their nature to sin. And nobody can avoid this. 
And therefore, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. See, God has issued a standard for us to live by, a way to measure up to the righteousness that He requires in order for us to be saved. And what is that standard? By what standard is it that we're supposed to live by? Well, it's Him. He is the standard. And for His Word says, Be holy, for I am holy. And He revealed to us in His law the measure in which we must live by in order to be saved. And you know what? We're unable to absolutely incapable of doing so. We can't keep the law perfectly. We cannot fulfill the requirements necessary by ourselves. We fall short. We miss the mark. We can't do it by ourselves. So how on earth are we to be saved? How on earth are we to please a God who seems to be so unappeasable? Well, what we could not do, God did for us. Amen? And just as we spoke about in our last point, God the Father loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be born of a virgin so that, we, so that he would be untainted by the nature of sin. This Jesus was tempted on all levels as we are, yet fulfilled the requirements of the law perfectly through his sinless and obedient life. He satisfied the wrath of God as he, willing, as he was willingly nailed to the cross. And in this, Jesus made a way for guilty sinners to be forgiven and for God to remain a just judge i.e. He is the propitiation for our sins. But this raises the question, what about sin in the life of a believer? Does our sin nature disappear once we're saved? Do we get the privilege of, of sinning as much as we would like to since we're saved by grace? The fact of the matter is that the moment that we're saved, we are given all the righteousness we need in order to obtain eternal life in heaven with God because of everything that Jesus has done. That salvation, and, and that salvation breaks the power that sin had over us. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are then slaves to God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're actually able to resist sin. But one thing that you might have noticed is that we still sin. Why do we still have to sin? It's in our nature. Although we are redeemed, we are still fallen humans. Although we may not sin as much as we used to or in certain ways that we once did, we still sin. And until Christ returns or He calls us home, we will always battle with sin. And that's why we fix our eyes on the hope of heaven where the curse will be lifted, where He's made all things new, and where sin will be no more. And so what do we do as Christians when we sin? That's the question at hand, right? What do we do as Christians when we sin? What is the appropriate response to our sinning and our sin nature? Allow us to pick up our reading here, beginning at verse 5 in chapter 1 and continuing to 2-2. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In verse nine, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2 and verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. So the appropriate response to sin in the life of the believer, as John points out, is to recognize our sins, to get real with the depths of our sins. We have to understand that sin equals death, right? Disobeying God isn't a hiccup. Disobeying God isn't a mistake. Disobeying God isn't a whoopsie. Disobeying God isn't a slip-up. No, disobeying God is serious, and the consequences of it is death. But blessed are us as Christians who have escaped the penalty of death. But let us remember that Jesus Christ paid the price of our sins on the cross with His blood and with His life. Get that. The precious blood and life of the innocent God-man Jesus was given for our sins. That's heavy. And sometimes we flippantly sin and don't care about the consequences. But for me, when I remember that Jesus died for my sins, sometimes that shakes me to my core. Sinning against God is serious. It's nothing to be taken lightly. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. The appropriate response to sin in the life of the believer, as John points out, is to confess our sins and to trust in the faithfulness of God to forgive us because we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous, seated in heaven, interceding for us day and night. Amen? And if you're like me, sometimes the the guilt of my sin, it really weighs me down. It makes me miserable. And other times I feel as if I'm swimming in a pool, like I'm treading water And from underneath the surface, sins that I haven't confessed, that maybe I was ignorant to, or or, or things that I just blatantly put aside, sins that I haven't confessed begin to sneak up on me and, and pull me down. And the next thing I know, my lungs are full of water, and I'm seeking to the bottom in desperate need of revival. You see, when we fail to confess our sins, we fail to come into agreement with God about our sin. See, because that's what that word confess means is to say the same thing about something it's to come into agreement with somebody so in this case when we're confessing our sins it's to come into agreement with god about what he has to say about sin so to confess our sins to god would mean to say the same thing about our sin that god says thus leading to true repentance but we oftentimes fail to confess our sins to God properly. We, we either act as if no sin ever occurred or we allow the weight of our sin to eat us alive. When we agree with God about our sins as Christians, we say, yes, I'm a fallen human. I'm unable to be perfect on my own. But this sin is serious and this sin costs the life and, and blood of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And because I'm a Christian, this sin grieves the Holy Spirit inside of me. And I'm so sorry, Father, for disobeying you. That's our appropriate response. But it doesn't stop there. Because I've said this many of times. I've said that statement, that phrase many times. God, I know I'm fallen. I know I mess up. You know I mess up. I know this sin is serious. I know Jesus died for my sins. My Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit inside of me is grieved. I'm so sorry I did this to you, God. I've said that many of times. But never truly repenting. Only self-condemning. Feeling sorrow, but no change, right? To truly agree with God about our sin as Christians, we must agree with God that Jesus is our advocate, 
our righteousness, that He intercedes for us, that He has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? You see, when we come into agreement with God about the seriousness of our sin, we understand through the gospel that He doesn't hold our sin against us. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And it sounds so cliche. We've said it a million times, right? But it means absolutely everything. Right there in that little area between where our heart breaks over sin because Jesus died for our sin and in between where our heart leaps for joy because of forgiveness in Christ, true repentance is found. Right there in that little area. A healthy local church and healthy Christians will have a healthy understanding of sin. And they're going to have a measurable rhythm of repentance. It's a mark of a true believer that we continually repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. One time for salvation and the rest, I guess, for sanctification. It's a mark of a genuine move of the Holy Spirit when believers are repenting. Great movements of God have begun when saints have got real with God and repented of their sins. And the next way we can measure that we are a healthy church is that we are living in obedience to God. So this measure is simple and it's to the point. A healthy local church, a healthy Christian will live in reverence for God, abiding in Christ, doing what he commands us to do. We'll pick up our reading there in verse two, or chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Remember that some of John's opponents denied the existence of sin and claimed to be able to do whatever they wanted to do and still be labeled a Christian. In this, we find the reason for these verses. And, and John said here, better yet, you know, hey, I was with Jesus. You know, I heard him. I seen him. I touched him. And matter of fact, Jesus didn't say what y'all are saying at all. You know, matter of fact, Jesus explicitly said that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Well, the tables have churned on his opponents there, haven't they? See, John makes it very simple for them. He says, we know that we know Jesus if we keep his commandments. He says, the one who says that they know Jesus but doesn't do as he says is a liar. Me and Rick was just having a conversation about a guy that we know who continually keeps going back to the same thing in his life. Back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And there's no evident change. He says that he loves Jesus, but his lifestyle proves otherwise. And therefore, what John is after is obedience. Now, our obedience to God is not what saves us. Remember, the gospel saves us, and all that the gospel requires from us unto salvation is repentance and faith. However, the product of our salvation is obedience. It's the tangible, outward, evident sign that we are born-again believers when we are living in obedience to the commands of God. So our mission statement, you know, at Imago Day, to live and look like Jesus, that's part of our mission statement, can be found here in verse 6. The one who says he abides in him ought also... Ought, him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, that's what we're after here at Imago Day. We desire desperately to be seen by God and by our community as a people who abide in Jesus and do what he commands us to do. We want to be a people who lean on Jesus, who press into Jesus, 
be in close communion in Jesus. We want to be a people whose minds are filled with His Word, whose wills are directed by Him, and whose desires are on the affections of Jesus Christ. A healthy local church and healthy Christians will live in obedience to what God has commanded. The greatest commandment that He has given is one that we all know, to love the Lord your God with the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this leads us to the next way that we can measure if we are a healthy church. Our fourth measure, that we have an evident love for God and neighbors. Again, the opponents of John were characterized by a lack of love for fellow believers. They would react in anger towards anyone who had disagreed with their view, right? They, they, and they would take their deceived followers with them and they would split the church. See, these opponents were more concerned with their own spiritual or their own personal gain than they were about the lives of the believers that they were disrupting. Their denial of Christ, their misunderstanding of sin, their disobedience their, towards God, their lack of love for others, and their love that they had for the world demonstrated that they not only do not know God, but they actually, in fact, hate God as He has revealed Himself to be. And look there at verse 9 with me. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. In verse 11, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So upon reading these verses in 9 through 11, we find a very startling reality. And to some of us, it's a surprise. We are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I've been around the church like probably not as long as some of you, but long enough to know that the hardest part, the hardest people to love sometimes are the people that are in the church, right? I don't know if that's you that uh, maybe I'm the only one that struggled. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. But sometimes my fellow brothers and sisters are the hardest people that I've ever met to love. Sometimes it's a whole lot easier to love that lost guy actually right across the street than it is to love um, the brothers and sisters who are in church. And I'm not saying that about you guys. I love every one of you guys, okay? So remember that. I'm not saying that about you. But I've been in situations where I've seen that, okay? And, uh, you know, I've been around long enough to see that. And it crushes my heart, honestly. It hurts me when I have a, when I have a hard time getting along with another brother or sister. Because, you know, I've been guilty of tearing down uh, other believers before and acting in ways that aren't so loving. You know, and it crushes me every time that somebody comes to me and they say, this is, this is the thing. Hey, man, I need you to really pray for so-and-so. Just pray for him because, you know, he is this and this and this and that and this and that, and he's really doing this. Like, it hurts my heart when they come to me and they add that caveat on there at first, like, hey, pray for so-and-so, but let me tell you how much of a screw-up he is. I hate that, man. That hurts me when you talk about another brother or sister like that. I'm not saying that you guys do that, but it hurts me when people come to me and they say that. You know, it wounds me every time that I witness somebody badgering another believer. It cuts me to the heart when I'm guilty of those things. Because according to this text, we are to love and care for one another and not cause dissension or disunity. And so that's why we have a rule here at Imago Day. You guys didn't know we had rules, right? We got a rule. It's really awesome. I've heard it from a pastor. It's not unique to me. But it says this, that if you're not part of the problem or part of the solution and you're talking about it, it's gossip and it's not very loving. Okay, so if we can just take that, if you're not part of the problem or part of the solution and you're talking about it, it's gossip and it's not very loving. If we could just take that and apply that in our lives, apply that as a church, we're going to avoid so much disunity 
and so much to, uh, uh, so much division or hard uh, feelings and thoughts towards other people here in our church. So as we looked at uh, you know Acts chapter two forty two through forty seven last week in our lighthouse group, we saw that these early believers had everything in common, that they shared in the needs of others, and that they longed to be together. I know this is true of us at Imago Day that we care for each other, that we carry one another's burdens. You know, I think about times that maybe Ben has texted me and he said, hey, man, I need you to pray for me over this. Uh, You know, this is going on and I have this happening. Would you please pray for me? You know, I think about the time when Cody got indicted, not for a recent crime that he did, but some past things. But when Cody was indicted and most of us were together at my house, you know, with his wife and and being there for them when Cody come home. You know, many times we've been in need as a, as a family and you all have stepped up and supported us or prayed for us or stuck by us through the thick and the thin, the good times and the bad. And we're so grateful for that, you know? And even for instance, when Joanna, when you had to go to the hospital this week, you know, we were all able to lift you up in prayer. We're, I think it's very evident that we've all carrying each other's burdens, right? We all care for one another and we all love each other. See, love for our brothers and our sisters is not only what John has in mind. So if we look at verses 15 through 17 in chapter 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also is its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So in stating the kind of love that God hates, which is love for the world, John reveals the love that he is after. A foremost, devoted, first place kind of love for God. Amen. See, the world in this text is used to describe the spiritual and twisted satanic controlled system, world system, not the world in a physical sense. Not saying like, hey, don't love the world and take care of it, but saying the world as in the twisted system that Satan is in control of. So a measure, a mark of a healthy Christian is someone who puts God first above everything else. There's someone who is not devoted to the affairs and the lust of the world, the pride of life, the American dream, but, but to doing the will of God. And it shouldn't take a magnifying glass for people to see who our allegiance is to. See, one simply cannot serve two masters. A Christian cannot have one foot in the world and one foot on the Bible. It's either all in or it's all out. It's, there's no riding the fence. Jesus isn't looking for lukewarm Christians. Our allegiance is made evident because we seek to do the will of God. And so in a nutshell, what is the most general will of God for the Christian? For all of us, what's the most general will of God? To love God to love your neighbor, to make disciples, right? If we're doing that, like, we don't have to question, like, oh, am I I doing the will of God? Because I love God, and I'm loving my neighbor, and I'm trying to make a disciple right now. So I don't know if I'm in the... No, you don't have to question. We know that that's a very general will that God has for a Christian. And in this, as Jesus said, as we keep his commandments, we abide in his love. And so, church, let me remind us this, that, that love has no boundaries, Right? Love has no limits. It knows no ethnicity or social class. It doesn't stop at the rich guy in his house over there. It doesn't stop with the drunk guy on the bus stop over there. Love has no limits. 
And our love for God and for our love for our neighbor must exude through the walls of this church building into our own personal families, into our own personal communities, into our own workplaces, and with other Christians. It doesn't just stay in here saying, oh, we do love each other. No, it's got to exude. It's got to seep through the walls of this local church building into every area of life that we have. We must demonstrate the love of God in our daily lives through the encouraging of the saints, through sharing the gospel, making disciples, and living in obedience to what he says. So let me ask you this question. I had a guy tell me one time he was discipling. Just so you guys know, this is... We got a little bit, but we're not too long. If you guys need to stand up and stretch your feet, go ahead and do that. But it's not going to be too much longer, but we got a, a little chunk. So I had a guy tell me one time, he said, if you really want to see how good of a Christian you're being, and I was in prison, he said, go back to the pod and go walk up to that Muslim guy over there and ask him, hey, would you evaluate me as a Christian? You know, and I'm like, and that's pretty sketchy. Why would I do that? Because honestly, like, he's, gonna, he's watching me all the time and everything that I do, and he's going to give me a true synopsis about, or evaluation about how I'm walking. Do I look like the world or do I look like Jesus? You know what I'm saying? Am I loving God? Am I loving others? Am I seeking to make disciples? And so my question is this. If, if, if somebody in your neighborhood or your place of work or at your school, Anthony, was to evaluate you as a Christian, what would they say? What would they say? I would hope and I would pray that they would say of each and every one of us in here that, that there is an evident love that we have for God and for our neighbors in our life. I hope and I pray that that's what they would say about us. See, how are we loving God? Are we putting Him first in our lives? How are we loving those around us? Are, are we seeking to make disciples and encouraging the saints? A measure of a healthy local church, a genuine move of the Holy Spirit is an evident love for God and our neighbor. Another way that we can measure our health as a local church in the fifth way is that we are devoted to the truth. So the Gnostic opponents that John went toe-to-toe with, the false teachers, claimed that they had a higher knowledge given to them by angels or through other means of this special revelation. See, this higher knowledge, however, always contradicted the Word of God. This higher knowledge that they had always contradicted the apostles' doctrine. It always proved to be false and a heretical teaching. And this is the reason why we find in chapter 2, in verse 26 and 27, fix your eyes there for me. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as he has taught you, you abide in him. So our fifth point there is that we are devoted to the truth. Now let me be clear. What this text is saying there in verse 26 and 27, it's not saying that you have no need for a pastor who shepherds you. There's many Christians, it's a common train of thought nowadays to think that, hey, I don't need the local church. I don't need a pastor to shepherd me. I'll watch online. I'll watch these videos and I'm good. I don't need to be accountable to anybody. I don't need to learn from anybody else. I read the Bible. I interpret it how I want because of this text. But I want you to know that this text isn't telling you to get up right now and to walk out of the service because you have no need for anybody to teach you because that would contradict so many other places in the scriptures. See, with the context of this passage in view, we understand that John is saying to pay no attention to those who are trying to deceive you. In fact, he's saying, give heed to the Holy Spirit within you who testifies to you what is true. One pastor uh, actually calls this 
our defense mechanism. He, he calls it a built-in lie detector that protects genuine Christians from heresy. As a healthy local church and as healthy Christians, we must be devoted to the truth like we see these believers uh, that John is writing to being. Those who are genuine, you know, that John is writing to, these, these genuine Christians are hearing of this strange new doctrine from these false teachers and it's throwing them into turmoil and it's throwing them into so much turmoil to the point that they're reaching out to John. They're asking John these questions and so in turn, John writes this book. They're looking for answers. So he says, listen to the Holy Spirit. You've heard it from the beginning. Allow him to testify what is true. As Jesus told his disciples before he left, the helper, the Holy Spirit, would lead them into all truth. So the Holy Spirit did that with the early church, and so he does with us today. John and these early Christians took a stand. They wanted, to, to, they wanted nothing to do with heresy or with opinions from well-polished people. They wanted the truth. All they wanted to hear and to know was, thus saith the Lord. They didn't want uh, what people thought. They didn't want what people dreamt about. They didn't want anything else, but they wanted the very words of God. And today, in our day and age, there are a people, uh, denominations, and different movements that claim to have a higher knowledge. That everything comes to them through special revelation, through dreams and visions and angels speaking to them. And many of them claim that they've sat at the very feet of Jesus and experienced God with their own two eyes. Many people claim this higher knowledge. And what they do is they abandon the authority of Scripture in that and saying that they don't need this because then they're able to say whatever they want. They're able to make God say whatever they want Him to say. And so we kind of stand in a little bit of a different category. We still sort of had the same opponents, but we stand in a different category today than the believers did back then. In fact, we have a very great advantage. Why? Because we have the written word of God in the palms of our hands. Sometimes we have several copies and versions of this in our homes. You know, we have the truth. We have the very word of God as he inspired authors to write it. We have the inerrant, the infallible, the complete word of God in its entirety available to us today. We even have great men of God who spent their entire lives studying this word who have wrestled with the heavy doctrines of Scripture, who have written their studies and commentary. We have several great men of God, very reliable, that we can look and, turn on, or look and lean on. We have access to original languages. We have access to interlinear Bibles. We have access to lexicons and access to dictionaries. We have all of this help to help us understand exactly what God has intended to say so we don't have an excuse for why we can't dig deeper into God's Word. While I was there at that missionary conference this week, uh, this last week, you guys, I heard so many amazing stories from missionaries that are overseas. You know, folks that would, were meeting and they would gather together and they would have just simply little pages of the Bible and they would get together in a small, tight room and they would sit together and their knees would be so, they would be like this and, and their knees would be touching the person's back in front of them and they're reading the scriptures with their flashlight, right? Missionaries going to these people and, and teaching them in a small, dilapidated building with flashlights, you know, holding their phones up with flashlights to be able to see what they're talking about. You know, Christians being dispersed and scattered and, and, and calling missionaries back home and saying all that we need right now are blankets and rice in order to survive. 
They're learning and growing and making disciples and being massive missionaries. And so we have no excuse for why we can't dig deeper into God's word. We have no excuse for why we don't want to have a higher understanding of the truth. We have no excuse for why we don't have an interest in doctrine other than allowing our schedule and our day-to-day lives to get in front of God. I was so encouraged by those guys, man. And it's sad. You know, they, they want to be like us. You know, those, those natives and um, indigenous people overseas, they want to be like us. They want to be Americans. Why? We, we want a heart like you, you know? They would, they, they, this guy shared a story. He said, I stood in the room and I asked the people, he said, how many of you guys have been to prison for your faith? And almost everybody raised their hand in that room. It's amazing. Man, what if we were like them? I thank the Lord for the freedom he's given us. And I thank the Lord, um, you know, for the liberties he's given us and our ability to be able to, you know, to exercise those things. So grateful for that we don't have to do that. But man, what if we had a heart like them? Is what I'm saying. I want you to think about it. Think of the list and a list of uh, tools and resources we have at the you know at our disposal to help us to be devoted to the truth. It's enormous. Apps and softwares and websites and we don't have to guess about what the scriptures say. We don't have to guess about the inerrancy of the scripture. We don't have to guess about the inspiration of the scripture. No, we can look to like 2 Timothy chapter 3 and see that all scriptures breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We don't have to guess about the qualifications of a pastor. Who can be a pastor? Who cannot be? We see them for ourselves in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We don't have to guess about what God says about marriage. We see for ourselves in Genesis that that God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. We don't have to guess about anything. We have an ample amount of resources at our disposal to make a stand for what God said is true. And besides all of these resources, guys, we have the greatest helper, the greatest helper of all, the Holy Spirit, who convicts and guides us into all truth. See, this devotion to the truth is an interest in the Word of God. It isn't something that you just arrive at. No, it's a hunger. And it's a hunger that we must feed with the bread of life as often as we can. See, without the intake of God's Word, uh, we as Christians will just shrivel up and we'll die. We'll starve to death. So our Bibles have to be open on more days than just on Sunday. Just because we've read the Bible in a year doesn't mean that we've come to know everything there is about it and we don't have to read it again. You see, the pages of the Scripture are a deep well which are made to be drawn from. And they're made to satisfy the deepest thirst that we have in our soul. They're made to satisfy the deepest thirst in our most troubling times of need. How 1 Corinthians chapter 13 applied to us last year may not apply to us in the same way this year. See, the Word of God is living and it's active. The singular truth of Scripture will remain the same, but God will speak to you through His Word in a number of ways through all of the years that we read it. Amen? And this hunger that we have for the Word of God is never satisfied. In fact, when there's a genuine move of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, they will feast on the Word of God. They will desire to know more about the Scriptures, more about doctrine. They want to know more about God. We should be devoted to the truth. A mark of a healthy church, a measure of a healthy Christian, is a Christian who is devoted to the truth and has an increasing interest in God's Word. Now for our closing point. I know you guys have been waiting for this the whole time, right? 
our closing point in chapter 5 is, is where we'll find that. And like I said, this isn't exhaustive, but our closing point in chapter 5, and beginning in verse 14, a measure of a healthy Christian is their confidence in prayer. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. As Christians, we can confidently approach the throne of God through prayer by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can have confidence in knowing that our prayers are heard and that they will be answered as we pray according to the will of God. And why is that? Because Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 28 says that the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, to those who have been called according to his purpose. So, Joanna, if you want to make your way up here and you can begin, you know, playing softly. The Spirit helps us in our weakness when we don't know how to pray as we should. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, searches the hearts and the mind of the Spirit. He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And He works all things for the good of those who love God been called according to his purpose so we can have confidence when we pray because we know god hears us as we pray according to his will in the spirit see a measure of a healthy christian is a christian who trusts god in prayer who takes their needs their requests their intercessions to god so that his will would be done leaving them there at his feet and trusting him a healthy church a healthy local church is a praying church. So guys, as I recap, a healthy local church can't, you know, what can be counted can't always be measured as a sign of health. Sometimes it's not the big building, the large number of people, or any of that stuff. So don't get discouraged when we have nine people, 17 people, 100 people, three people. Know that if we're doing these things, and we are marked by health. That the Spirit of God is moving. And know this, that a healthy church is a praying church. A church who prays confidently to God. A church who lifts one another up in prayer. A church who asks God to provide labors because the harvest is ripe. A church who asks God for wisdom and discernment in their budget. A church who asks God for protection. A healthy Christian is one who depends on God in prayer. A genuine move of the Holy Spirit is marked by praying saints. A measure of a healthy local church is a church who confidently prays. And there's no better way that I could preach this point than to demonstrate it to you today and get you guys involved. 